Well, there was more than 2,200 guests invited. There were representatives from 203 countries, and there were also approximately 100 heads of state. You imagine the prime ministers, the presidents, all the important people. No, this wasn't my 21st birthday party that I'm referring to. This was rather the king's coronation. This was the coronation of King Charles. Well, a week before the coronation, the spontaneous and the free will spirit that I am, I decided that I was going to go and travel to witness it in person. So that Saturday morning at 4 a.m., I got out of my bed and I traveled down to the bus station and got the bus down to London. The moment I stepped off that bus, I could sense the excitement. As I walked from, from the bus station towards Buckingham Palace, the crowds got thicker, and I could sort of see a rush in everybody's step. Everyone I passed that day had sort of a look of, an, of anticipation and excitement upon their faces. When I arrived at the mile, it was absolutely jam-packed. Everyone there was sort of seeking for a, a little gap that they could get a glimpse of the royal procession that was about to come before their eyes. I got a little spot about four rows of people behind. And it was after a couple of hours of waiting that whispers and murmurs began to pulsate through the crowds. He's coming. He's on his way. He's coming. The royal procession was coming down the mile. Well, as the king traveled past us, it was as if everything just stood still. It was almost as if everyone with one breath was just in awe that they could actually see the king on his coronation journey with their own eyes. It was a moment that we were to behold our king. If I was to describe the coronation of King Charles in that, that moment where I was standing there, it sort of felt like a, a behold moment. But from reading this section of Colossians 1, I believe we're being told to come and behold Jesus. However, unlike King Charles, the way of doing this isn't the, the pop down to Buckingham Palace on a rainy day in May. No, we don't, need to, we don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to add anything to Jesus. All we need to do to behold Jesus is to be reminded of who he is, what he has done, how he has done it. Friends, that's because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. That's the theme of our Colossians sermon series, which David began last week. And so this evening, I want us to, to lift our eyes to see who Jesus is and cause us to behold him. As we look at this passage of Colossians, I want us to behold and, and hold on to Jesus, the Lord of all. So firstly, behold Jesus, Lord of all creation. Read the beginning of verse 15 with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Well, have you, have you ever wondered what God is like? Has anyone ever asked you that? Perhaps deep down you think that God is the cruel headmaster and you're sort of the troublesome child that keeps getting in the way. Stephen Fry, when asked this question, said, used these adjectives to describe God. He said that God was capricious, mean-minded, stupid, a maniac, utterly monstrous. Let me ask, who is God to you? In the very first sentence of this passage in Colossians, we have this question answered. 
We are told that the sun is the image of the invisible God. So, so who is God? What is God like? To know this, we must look to Jesus. Jesus is God made visible. Jesus isn't sort of a poorly made remodel of God. Jesus isn't a B-team character of God. Jesus isn't sort of God's handyman to do stuff on earth. No, this is the amazing truth that Jesus is God. Why? Because Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord of all. So before the beginning of the universe, Jesus was supreme. But what about sort of as we consider how the universe began and as it began? Look at verse 15 with me. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. One of the great joys of my childhood was um, having a sister. I don't know if you can relate. But also, having a sister was one of the many areas of, of battles and conflicts through my childhood. One area of particular contention was who got to sit in the front seat. I don't know if you can relate to that. I remember there, there was many races had, there was many wrestling matches had outside the passenger seat door of the car. But there was one line which I absolutely detested, and yet it always carried the most authority. And that it was no... Joel, your sister Emily gets the front seat. Why? Because she's the older sister. She's the older sibling. In many ways, because my sister was the firstborn, she owned the right to that front seat. And in our modern world, sort of our society today, that may be the limit of what the firstborn actually means to us. But we need to understand that for the ancient world, it meant far more. For the ancient world, this wasn't just sort of whether um, they could get the front seat of the car, but rather this was whole regions of, of land, whole regions of, of status and, and power. And because the term firstborn was such a big deal, because it was so important to the ancient world, Paul uses it here to describe um, what Jesus is to creation. So when we read in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, this is not referring to Jesus being a created being. You just have to read the next verse to see that in verse 16. But it is a metaphor that shows us how Jesus is the first in rank. Just as my sister had the, the right to the front seat, so Jesus has the right to the whole universe. Jesus is the one above all else. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is Lord over all. So we've seen from Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of God, that Jesus is the firstborn. But let's now think how Jesus is the creator. Read verse 16 with me. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Do you know that to travel to London um, from Nottingham, it's roughly 100 miles, depending where you start from. To travel from London to Australia, it's a whopping 9,461 miles. Well, to travel from the Earth to the Moon is 238,855 miles. And the distance from the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. And if you think that's long, think of this. It's 20 years in an airplane, 20 years. Can you imagine how cramped your legs would be in a Ryanair flight for 20 years? 40 minutes is enough. 
But this, the distance from the, the sun to Pluto is 3.8 billion miles. So if 20 years didn't blow your mind, that's 1,000 years in an airplane. 1,000 years. Do you see how expansive, how, how grand our universe is? That's only our solar system. Friends, behold Jesus. He's the creator of the vast, the expansive, the incredible universe. And yet, Jesus is also the creator of the incredibly microscopic, the minuscule. Every atom of our bodies here this evening, a grand creation of Jesus, every strand of DNA, every single cell, every little part of us, it's a grand creation of Jesus. And friends, we can um, think of that, but we also need to realize that's only the visible. He's also the creators of things unseen, creator of the heaven, of the angels, creator of all things. We can forget King Charles or President Biden or Rishi Sunak because we're even told how God is creator of all thrones, all dominions, all authorities, all rulers. He is Lord of them all and all will bow at the feet of King Jesus. So let me ask, what about you this evening? Do you feel overwhelmed um, by the pressures of life? Do you feel like being a Christian, perhaps in school or the workplace, is sort of like being a lamb amongst wolves, as there's sort of a, a deeper hatred of Christianity in our society? Do you even feel lost in life? Then be comforted and be reminded of, of who your king is. It's Jesus. And your king, your, your creator, he knows you. He sees you. He hears you. Friends, behold your creator, Jesus, Lord of all of creation. Our passage doesn't just tell us to who Jesus, um, that he's just the creator. We're also told who creation is for. Look down at the end of verse 16. All things have been created through him and for him. Have you ever asked yourself what the point of everything is? Maybe you ask yourself that on the Monday morning when you've woken up at 6 a.m. You're just like, what is the point? But have you really asked yourself, what is the point of creation? Well, know that in Colossians, we're not given a what. We are given a who is the point of creation. The goal of creation is all for Jesus. He is the end goal. Jesus is the beginning and Jesus is the end. All of creation is to give Jesus the glory. R. Kent Hughes, a pastor and professor in theology, comments this. He says, One day everything will give him glory. Since this is true, we should live completely for him. Any other course is completely irrational for the believer. Are you living totally for God? Or are you living outside rationality? Your life isn't about you. Your life is all about Jesus. That will either be a huge kick in the teeth or that will be the greatest comfort and reassurance you've ever heard that God didn't create the world to have you. God created the world so that you could have him. How wonderful is that? And with that in mind, shouldn't that change how the way we view our lives? We can know that we were designed to be in communion, to give glory to Jesus. 
If, if he is the purpose, if he is the goal of our, of our whole lives and all of creation, time with God isn't no longer something we just squash in their mornings. Rather, time with God is how we actually spend our days. It's how we spend our life. So behold, Jesus, the point and the purpose of all of creation. Paul then goes on to tell us how Jesus is the sustainer of creation. Read verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. A great debate that has been had by many, um, and me and Spencer in particular this year, um, has been Mac versus Windows, Apple versus Microsoft. And although I absolutely love Mac, can I just say, because it is what I think is superior, I have to be honest, it is still just a software system. It's still just zeros and ones. It still crashes. It's not perfect. It has bugs. It's glitches. But yet we are told how Jesus is the one who holds all things together. So in a sense, Jesus is the better, the the greater operating system, not of a feeble computer, but rather of an entire cosmos. So if your life seems to be falling apart or things, things will be out of control, will you find your hope in Jesus? He's the sustainer. He will sustain you. So Jesus is the firstborn. He's the creator. He's the goal. He's the sustainer. So behold Jesus, the Lord of all of creation. So we've seen in verses 15 to 17 of Colossians 1 how Jesus is Lord of, of all of creation that's been created. But as we come to verse 18, there appears to be a little bit of a shift. You see, now the emphasis is on the the new creation, and more specifically, how Jesus is Lord. Jesus is first, how Jesus is first over the new creation as well as the old. Verse 18 reads this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Well, in 1945, Mike the Headless Chicken survived a whopping 18 months without a head. Um, I know you might look at me, and I'm about to say this, but the sad reality is for humans, we can't survive a single second without our heads. You might think I don't screw my head on every day. Um, Many might think that, but it's true. We couldn't survive a single second without our heads. And that's the exact reason why Paul describes Jesus as the head of the church. His point is this, that without Jesus, there would be absolutely no life. And the church isn't just talking about us here at Cornerstone this evening. Rather, it's much broader than that. The church is a reference to all of humanity that will be present in the new creation. So often I worry about the church. I don't know about you. Do you worry that Christian leaders, um, will they keep growing in the church? Will they stay faithful? Will the church sort of persevere through hardship and persecution? We can still our souls. Why? Because we know who the head is. We know who's in charge. It's Jesus. He is the head of the church. And he knows what he's doing. We are then told how Jesus is also the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And again, this usage of the term firstborn, it doesn't refer to sort of a a chronology of events. Instead, Paul is using the term to communicate the fact that Jesus 
is first in rank when it comes to resurrection. That without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be a resurrection of nobody else. That Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. Paul ends verse 18. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is and must be first in absolutely everything. If you're a Christian here tonight, that will mean that Jesus is first in your career, that he's first in your family, first in your marriage, first in your sports, first in your friendship. That Jesus is first in absolutely everything. But ultimately, we're just very bad at this, aren't we? I still struggle to put Jesus ahead of the alarm clock, ahead of an extra 10 minutes of sleep when I wake up in the morning, never mind the sort of more serious and more difficult battles that we face. Yet when we feel it, it's hard to put Jesus first. What's the answer to doing that? Well, it's to behold how good he is. It's to behold how great he is. To behold his majesty and his awesomeness. Because when we see how good he is, how could anything else compare? Behold Jesus, the Lord over the new creation. Inasmuch as Jesus is supreme, this section of Colossians also communicates to us that Jesus is sufficient Look at verse 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If it isn't already clear, we are told in verse 19 the most amazing truth that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus wasn't just a man that could do amazing miracles. He wasn't just a prophet from God. He wasn't just an incredibly good guy. No, Jesus, the man who was on earth 2,000 years ago, who really lived, he was God. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. In other words, if verse 15 tells us that God is Jesus-shaped, then verse 19 tells us that Jesus is God-sized. Jesus is God-sized. That's why the supremacy and the, the sufficiency of Jesus are tied together. Because Jesus is fully God, because he is Lord over all of creation, because he is Lord over the new creation, we can know that our salvation is sure, that our salvation is complete, that when it comes to our reconciliation in verse 20, or the peace made between humanity and the peace made between humanity and God, that Jesus is enough. But the question we're left, ask, left asking is how? How did Jesus reconcile to himself all things? It might sound shocking to us, but really, if we were new to it, and if we were to really think about it, it's absolutely incredibly shocking. He did it through the blood of his cross. The Lord of all, allowed himself to be whipped. The Lord of all allowed himself to be beaten. The Lord of all allowed himself to wear a crown of thorns, to carry a cross. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, allowed himself to be, to be spat on and, and mocked as he had nails driven through his hands hands that, that flung stars into space 
take the nails in my place. Those are the words from a song called Let on Him. Can you name to me any other religion whose God has stepped into humanity? Who's died the death of a criminal all because of the love that he has for his creation? It's scandalous. Yet this is our God. So friends, behold Jesus, the Lord of the new creation. Finally, Hold on to Jesus. He is Lord of you. Read verses 21 to 23 with me. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, when I went to see the coronation, I went pretty gladly. I was happy to just sort of be part of the crowd, celebrating. I just sort of went to see the the vibe, the atmosphere. But there were also many people there that day that weren't overly happy to be there. There were quite a few people that day that were wearing t-shirts, that were holding posters that were were anti-monarchy. They were protesting and and rebelling against the king. And and just before, I am not debating about that. I just don't care enough. But Colossians 1.21 tells us this. It tells us that we're all rebels. We're all rebels. And it's far more serious than being rebellious against King Charles because we're being rebellious against King Jesus. We were told how we are once alienated enemies of God, practicing evil. We've just spent a large portion of tonight focusing on the awesomeness, the majesty of Jesus, but now the attention is shifted towards us. And it's not good because we're guilty. We lie, we we cheat, we steal, we're sexually immoral, we make little of the most holy God. The list could just go on and on. I wonder if you imagined your sin portrayed at at the front wall. I wouldn't want to be here if it was me. I'm sure no one else would. We know that we're guilty and our sin cannot go unpunished. Have you ever thought about what you deserve? As a culture, we sort of have this incredibly entitled mindset. We think we deserve to have the the nice house. We deserve to have the good job. We deserve sort of the reasonable grades. We deserve a sizable pension. We deserve to be even highly respected. But we are told in Romans that the wages of sin is death. So what do sinful people deserve? Well, the answer from the scriptures is we deserve death. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher from the 18th century, notes that there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. The reason we can sit here this evening is down to the incredible mercy of a holy God. So before we look up, let us plunge the depths of our sinful hearts Because naturally, Jesus is Lord over all. He's supreme in everything. 
And yet naturally, what is our position? We're enemies of God. But praise be to God. Praise be to him that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not leave us in that state. Instead, he looked upon us with with mercy and with love. Read verse 21 and 22 with me. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The start of verse 21 begins with an attention on us. It begins, we're reminded of our, our, our sinful, our hopeless state. But when we look at verse 22, it begins, but now he. Do you see that the attention is immediately back on Jesus? Why? Because it's highlighting to us that our salvation is not down to us because it could never be down to us. We could not make peace with God. Only Jesus could do that. He has made peace and his method of doing so was enduring the wrath of God upon the cross. And what was the purpose of this? So that we could be presented holy, without blemish and free from accusation. Do you notice the contrast there? That we were enemies of God and because of Jesus we are now seen as holy or set apart for God. That we were enemies of God and because of Jesus we are now seen without blemish. We were doing evil, but because of Jesus, we are now free from accusation. What incredible, what full, what awesome salvation there is to be found in Jesus, the Lord of all. I look down at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. When, when Paul writes, if indeed you continue in the faith, I don't think he means this in a negative way. I don't think he means this, if indeed, which I'm quite unsure and I'm quite nervous about that you'll continue in the faith. No, I don't think that's the tone of the argument that's being made in Colossians. Rather, I think it's this, if indeed, which I fully expect you to, continue in the faith. Paul has just explained how great Jesus is. So he fully expects that when the Colossians see the greatness of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, that they will hold on, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Because friends, when we see how great Jesus is, we must ask, why would we go anywhere else? What other gospel shall we turn to? Because nothing is greater than in him. This was the question the Colossians needed to be asked. For them, philosophies and, and human traditions were added to the gospel. We see that in chapter 2. They were added to Jesus. And we are not unlike the church in Colossae. There are many ways in which we can add to Jesus and the message of the gospel. Perhaps you know that you're a Christian. But if you could just follow that Bible plan a little bit more closely, or maybe if you served in areas of the church a bit better, or if you just gave away more money or more time or more energy, then you'd sort of earn another brownie point in the cosmic record of God. You'd be more accepted. Because of what you do, you'd be more loved by God. It's not that these things are bad. 
they cannot replace Jesus. What areas of your life do you still believe you need more than Jesus? Maybe what areas do you think you just don't need him at all? Friends, hold on to Jesus. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. He is Lord of all creation, the Lord of the new creation, and he is Lord of you and of me. To close, let me bring you back to the picture of the carnation. I want you to imagine the protesters that were there holding their little signs and wearing their t-shirts and the king is coming past down the mile. He stops, he sees them. And what does he do? He opens his carriage and invites them in. See, we serve a God tonight. We're beholding Jesus. He didn't just stop and invite us rebels in. He stopped, endured the full cross so that he could welcome us. He invites us to come to him. So why would you wait? Will you behold your King Jesus who is Lord over all and accept his blood-bought invite to come? And when troubles come, when hardships arise, will you hold on them because of how great and awesome and majestic and incredible he is. Let me close in prayer. Father, I do just thank you for how incredibly amazing you are. Father, I thank you that we can look at a passage like this and just be completely mind-blown Lord, adjust the greatness and the incredible God that we serve. Lord, I do um, confess all the times where I've just been so apathetic towards you, perhaps. The times where I've just not seen you as great as you are. And Lord, I pray that as we even consider the following week, that God, would you just help us to have our eyes made so much more of you and just to to have you made so much more off in our thoughts. Lord God, I pray, would you just be with us the rest of this evening as we consider and behold you. Amen.